Hello and welcome to After the Facts with me, Matthew Blackman. Today we're going to be looking at one of the most important issues in South Africa today. In fact, one of the most important issues in South Africa for the last 30 years. However, it does seem to fly underneath the radar, or as I recently said, underneath the rainbow, both of which are seemingly true. Electoral reform has been on the cards since 1994, and yet there have been task teams and ministerial advisory committees, and still we are stuck with the system in place. There is, however, at the moment, a electoral amendment bill in Parliament. It has been kicked into Parliament by the Constitutional Court, and it has been there for over two years, and with little seeming hope that it will ever be accepted constitutionally. Today we're going to investigate just what the electoral system is, what it should be, and what it could be, and what Parliament is proposing it to be. I'll be speaking to four experts on electoral reform, Professor Roger Southall, Professor William Gumede, Professor Dirk Kotzer, and Ibrahim Fakir. Let's get into it. So to understand our electoral system, you have to go back to 1910, to what was the national convention that created the Union of South Africa and the system that they chose as our electoral system then. This is William Gumede. As a background, from 1910 to 1993, South Africa had variations of the British first-past-the-post electoral system. So in that system, during the apartheid era, and sort of from the Union of, the Union of South Africa days, voters cast their vote for a candidate of their choice, and then the candidate that receives the most votes obviously win. I mean, that, that system it really I mean, they, it's widely used in the English-speaking world, UK, Canada, some of the Commonwealth countries. Now, what then happened in 1993, um, the interim constitution, when they put together the interim constitution of ANC, National Party, or the other political parties, they proposed a change in the electoral system, and a proportional representation PR system was introduced. Now, under the system, PR system, parties receive a share of the total seats proportional to the number of votes um, they receive. And then the 1994 election was the very first one that used that system. Now, the reason why the first past the post system was so controversial was the fact that in 1948, the National Party came to power with a minority of the popular vote. This goes back to 1910, when an agreement was made that to try and weight the rural areas with the urban areas equally, they allowed for a 30% difference in population between an urban constituency and a rural constituency. Now, when the Afrikaners began to move to the cities, they began to not only dominate in the rural areas, but also could win urban areas. But one thing the first-past-the-post system has is accountability. Because you vote in your member of parliament, in your constituency, and that member of parliament normally comes from that area, you are acquainted with that person, 
you are aware of their personality and their politics and they also have because they are voted in by a constituency a certain amount of independence within parliament but as i've said there are problems with it as far as representation minorities can rule over majorities and as Roger Southall tells us the ANC wasn't particularly bothered by this to begin with. You know, the first past the post would actually have quite suited the ANC in terms of winning because they would have, I, I haven't seen it, you know, done by computer, but I imagine that they would have had a larger majority than they, than, than they got in, 90, in 1994. Because of course it all depends so much on well in our country you know South Africa it would depend so much on uh, racial demography um, in '94 that uh, uh, it'd been very difficult for the opposition to get constituencies where they could actually win anything. So I think we'd have had a, an exaggerated ANC majority. So I so I, I think in terms of how did we get from from first past the post to PR. Um, well, I think that's an interesting question and I don't actually know the inside mechanics because I think the ANC changed its position or changed its thinking on the position during the negotiation process. However, during the negotiation process, it was decided that the PR system, particularly because of what had happened under apartheid, would be a better system for South Africa for very specific reasons. So the idea is we promote party diversity. Now, why would we promote party diversity? I mean, that's obvious to me was like, why would we want to do that? Now, at the time, the argument was that, look, that will make broad political representation through multiplicity of political parties. But along with proportional representation, came the most controversial issue of all, the closed party list system. This meant that parties would draw up a list of candidates who they would place in Parliament. There would be no direct electing of members of Parliament by the people. Instead, the people would vote for a party and the party would decide on who represented the people in Parliament. Now this meant that the party could control the members of Parliament, that the members of Parliament would simply be the servant of the party and not the servant of the people, and that the party managers could control how their members voted in Parliament and what their members said in Parliament. I mean, so our system currently, so it's called a uh, closed party list proportional representative electoral system, uh, both at a national and provincial level. So in a closed party system, the parties draw up the candidate list without any say from the voters. So, so that undermining democracy. So essentially what it happens is ANC Day, like in, you know, they're under democratic centralism, I guess what they call it. They look for their candidates, um, they pick them, and they normally um, increasingly over the years, kind of, you have to be a loyal cadre, uh, uncritical, you know, it could be incompetent. Um, they, they're very happy with that as long as you're just loyal to the leader. And then they will actually send you to a constituency. So a lot of, if you just, just look at um, the members of parliament, 
of the ANC, so so you know there's constituency time, so they go off and go work in the constituency. So the ANC actually put you in a constituency if you uh, MP. You know, for example, I mean, you from let's just say you from Attridgeville, they'll send you off there, let's say to Langa in the Cape, and that's your constituency. I mean, you would, they, the people there will know you, you will know them, but that's what the party assigned you to. I think the system started off with high hopes, and I think people really didn't read their textbooks and see how party managers could fix the sort of, you know, could fix it. Because, it, you know, it's a well-known problem in PR that party managers can sort a lot of the process out. And in terms of the ANC's tradition of uh, decisions being made by the branches and so forth, you know, there was a sort of a sense that uh, you could mix the two systems as far as the ANC was concerned, because you would have democratic control from the bottom and people would, popular people would be elected, they would get on for party list and hey presto and then the top guys at the start initially said well we've got to have uh, demographic racial representation so we'll let everybody elect their chosen people and then we'll manipulate the list at the end to make sure we've got enough, not got enough Indians and got enough whites in the right places and so forth. So I think there was at one level that sort of non-racial and that sort of democratic imperative at the beginning, but I think after that it's probably gone a bit haywire and we know it's going to uh, become much more just simply narrow party interest. In this, William Gumede agrees with Roger Salfon, saying that we shouldn't have been this naive, we should have seen what was coming. I guess we were also naive because, you know, all of the other liberation parties, I mean, you know, they also like, you know, Zani PF in the nineteen eighty election started the independence election started exactly the same. Um, and then of course they're after like two years into power. By nineteen eighty two they were kind of, you know, they kicked out of like all the alliance partners. They feel like they're trying to form one party state. The PITC in Kavera did the same, you know, um, Algeria, you know, when they did the reforms. In the late 1980s, you know, they also tried to manipulate the electoral system exactly the same. So in a way, we should have been a little bit less, I guess, naive, but we were, obviously. Uh, but we shouldn't have given the history of sister movements that kind of operated like the NC. But as both William Gumede and Roger Salfo told us, this is not how it was meant to remain. There was always meant to be electoral reform. It was supposedly there for the transition election before the election was fully, the electoral system was fully decided. So now we are still in that limbo land. So Mandela in 1999, um, just before he left office, he called for a review of the electoral system. So he handed it over for Tam Becky to do. So then Tam Becky established the Stars team in 2002 with Fanzeo. Slabbers. So what I had to do is to firstly look at this new, a new electoral system, but the brief also included at the time. So the big thing at the time was whether floor crossings should be allowed. So as William Gumede tells us, Tabo and Becky established the electoral task team under Frederick von Sale Slabbert in 2002. The task team was comprised of 12 members. Eight of them were relatively independent experts on electoral systems and four of them were members of the ANC. In 2003, the task team released its final report and its final recommendations. 
but it turned out that the committee was split. Eight people had agreed with the recommendations and the four members of the ANC had disagreed with the recommendations. Constituency based, so it become like a bipartisan thing and they actually follow the instructions from the ANC's national leadership. So they didn't make up their own minds about the system. So, you know, and that's a heartbreaking thing because if you're in these inquiries, I mean, you have to think about the interests of the country, not the interests of your party or the interests of the party leadership. And I think that, in a way, is kind of, you know, from a democracy point of view, when you sit there, you appoint an inquiry, you have to look at the public interests of the country and what is, what is the electoral system that will work for generations to go long, you know, long before you you know, your own life, then you go and decide, no, you're actually going to go take the narrow approach, the kind of selfish, self-interested approach, and you're going to listen to the party leadership who tells you, no, this doesn't work for our party. And what became of the Funsales-Flubbert recommendations? Well, unsurprisingly, absolutely nothing. This is Ibrahim Fakir. The, the short answer to your question is nothing happened to it. It, it was used as a prop periodically where people would say, no, let's look at it, and then, and then nothing would happen to it. I and mean, you'll have lots of public, and there have been public discussions about it, particularly uh, by NGOs, many such as My Vote Counts, the Council for the Advancement of South Africa's Constitution, many different organizations, uh, Helen Sussman Foundation, so many have had debates, have had roundtables, have had papers have commissioned things to look at electoral reform. Nothing really happened until this constitutional court case. In 2020, there was a court case that went to the constitutional court about independent candidates. This is Professor Dirk Kotze. First of all, the background is it comes from a NGO that took it to the different levels of the judicial system and was motivated by one of the applicants is, is, says she is a princess of the Khoisan, and she believes that in terms of her status, therefore, she doesn't want to account to any political party and does not want to be dependent on any political party in order to be a member of parliament. So she argued that she wants to be, be completely independent and decide for herself about be, becoming a candidate and ultimately acting as a member of parliament on her own without any strings attached to any political party. So in the end, and the constitutional court actually agreed with her that the constitution does not exclude that possibility in terms of section 19 and in terms of what is in the Bill of Rights referred to as the political rights of all citizens. And therefore, they instructed that provision must be made for what they called independent candidates. So the Concord's decision had very little to do with members of parliament and accountability, and everything to do with whether an independent candidate could run for parliament. So the question is, just what has the Constitutional Court judgment done for South Africa, and what have been the political consequences. The import of the court's finding is not very decisive because it simply says that the parliament must make new legislation which allows for independent candidates to contest, which means that parliament and the parties that constitute parliament have uh, an opportunity to either go a thoroughgoing reform route or 
what we all called at the time a minimalist approach to complying with the constitutional court's finding. And my view is that what is going on now is in fact a tick box compliance. I would even go so far as calling it malicious compliance. It's complying for the sake of complying. So what does Ibrahim Fakir mean by this? Well, a ministerial advisory committee was set up under Vali Musa to advise the Minister of Home Affairs, Aaron Mutsaledi, after a period of consultation with various organizations and discussions. Again, this committee, like the Fonseil Slubbard Committee, divided into two. The one had a majority decision, which was relatively similar to the Fonseil Slubbard recommendations, and a minority of the advisory committee had something else. Both of these recommendations went to the minister. And what recommendations did the minister accept? The minorities. The minorities view was taken and this was formulated into what is now the electoral amendment bill which is now sitting in parliament and has not been decided on despite the fact that the constitutional court demanded that this process had to be completed within two years. It, of course, wasn't completed in two years, and the Constitutional Court has given Parliament an extension till the 10th of December this year. But what are the minority recommendations? Will they sustain scrutiny? Because um, the ANC itself is divided on their own things, as I talk about mismatch. Um, they haven't tossed through this whole thing. And so if it's, for example, if what is being proposed by Parliament right now, according to lawyers, uh, the Engagement Act, will be rejected <laughs> as not sufficient at all. I would really love to be able to get together exactly what the differences are in the two systems that were being proposed and how the Electoral Amendment Bill will be unconstitutional. Basically, it is quite complex and difficult to explain, but the bill as proposed will reduce the proportionality concept within the electoral system, which is a constitutional imperative. The other system that comes from the Fonseil Slubbert recommendations is also relatively complex, but at the heart of it is the attempt to get members of parliament to be accountable and relatively independent representatives of a constituency or a region or a municipality. And on speaking to Ibrahim Fakir, I think it is important to perhaps end with him just as a way of understanding why it is so important that we build into our electoral system the idea of constituency representatives. So I think individuals should be allowed to differ with their parties 
people would say nominally in the current system they can do so, but we know that that's not the case because you will either be demoted or there will be some kind of reprisal. In instances where there aren't reprisals, the herd mentality is such that you will often have mavericks and, and, and extreme minorities who will be prepared to do so. By and large, most people will go with whatever. But if you have constituency-torn MPs who will be party-affiliated, sure, and they will carry a party line for the most part, but there are real issues in which they might, in fact, start applying their own discretion, which is, in fact, what we want, right? And then they will justify it to their constituencies. For me, that's the one advantage. The second advantage is that there's a developmental advantage. MPs are often, when they are drawn from constituencies, at particular stages of historical development are good for society because they will argue for more resources for their constituencies. So constituency surgeries in the UK are not just about an MP who does outreach to their constituencies. No, they actually fight for budgets in their, in their constituency areas for schools, for hospitals, for NHS stuff, for all kinds of things, right? And so that's, there's a developmental advantage. And third, there's an oversight advantage. When you are drawn as an MP from your constituency, you are likely to coordinate with the local government councillor and with the provincial representative to make sure that schools in your area are more or less functional, hospitals and clinics in your area are more or less functional, you will do site visits, and and people, officials are much more responsive to a nationally elected MP who does constituency visits of that kind. So I think if you change the system in that way, you are incentivizing both the behavior of voters and the behavior of the individually elected representatives. It will take some time for the culture to change, yes, but the change in that system has the potential to do that. If you retain the system as it is, none of those incentives apply. The MP is not interested in site visits to schools and hospitals. Their oversight visits are largely, you know, it's a job. It's a job. So there you have it. We desperately need electoral reform in South Africa. We desperately need a mechanism to be introduced to create accountability and independent thinking within Parliament, as well as creating direct access to politicians and giving those politicians a sense of place, a sense of identity within the community that they serve. At the moment, we have none of that. And as a result, South African democracy has become something of a farce. Whether we can call what we have functioning or dysfunctioning at the moment a democracy with a functioning parliament is a big question. Thanks for listening. And of course, thank you very much to the people who spoke to me, Professor Roger Southall, Professor William Gumede, Professor Dirk Kotzer, and Ibrahim Fakir. Your insights were incredibly helpful for me, and I hope they were helpful to those listeners out there. The next podcast I want to do is on the Wagner Group, the Russian mercenaries in Africa, and actually also in Ukraine at the moment. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>